0: The pandemic has been going on for so long that international affairs observers nearly forgot that two of America's closest allies in one of the most consequential regions in the world have been locked up in a bitter dispute since 2018. South Korea believes that its citizens, who were victims of forced labor under Japanese occupation between 1910 and 1945, have the right to pursue legal cases against private companies that exploited their bodies. Japan believes that they do not have such rights and both countries have been exchanging barbs that did not fully dissipate even with the outbreak of COVID-19. Indeed, things might actually get worse in the coming months. On June 1st, South Korean courts secured legal grounds to liquidate assets of Japanese steelmaker Nippon Steel that are held in South Korea, and used them to compensate forced labor victims. The seized assets are not a lot of money for a conglomerate like Nippon Steel, approximately U.S. dollars But what is on the line is not money, but historical narrative. Our guest today is University of Connecticut professor Alexis Dudden, who is the author of the fantastic book on this very subject titled Troubled Apologies Among Japan, Korea, and the United States. She joins KI Vice President Mark Tokula for a timely discussion that highlights how these tensions are arising at a particularly bad moment in international relations and why controversies over history between Korea and Japan are so difficult to address in the context of the respective countries' domestic politics. With no further delay from the Korea Economic Institute in Washington D.C., you're listening to Korean Context.
1: Welcome, Alexis. Thank you. Do I understand that you're zooming in from Connecticut?
2: I am zooming in from Noank, Connecticut, near the Groton Sub Base.
1: Okay, I'm from Washington D.C. as usual from my apartment. We're going to talk about Japan-Korea relations today. The deterioration relations between Japan and South Korea was one of the big stories of 2019 BC, that's before coronavirus, but we've not been hearing much about it recently. I'm not sure if that's because relations have plateaued or bottomed out, or if just they're being overwhelmed by the pandemic news, so being overshadowed. Objectively, these are two countries that should get along. Domestically, they're similar. They're both democracies. They're both free market economies. Both are technologically driven. And externally, they face very similar challenges in China and North Korea, and dealing with the US under the Trump administration. But despite that, they've had difficulty getting along. It seems like the high watermark may have been 2002 when they jointly hosted the World Cup. And since then, it's been very rocky. So to begin, how would you describe the current relationship between Korea and Japan?
2: Thank you very much for including me in your ongoing webinar series. And I hope everybody who is listening is safe and healthy we are all in this together several weeks ago i listened to steve norper and he had a great line so i'm just going to quote him and he said that every nation has its own pandemic to deal with Mm -hmm. and i think that this is just it's overwhelmed the global system it's overwhelmed personal thinking, those of us who are fortunate enough not to be physically challenged by it are just constantly aware of it in a way that it makes all of the framing of even your excellent question seem like a quaint world before. My colleagues, of course, as historians are already dating pre-COVID, post-COVID, and when does it begin? When does it end? I think the, the notice of 2002 World Cup is actually kind of helpful to get a sense of where things could be, because even in early March, South Korean Foreign Minister Kang, also Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, were both supportive of Prime Minister Abe's quest for the Olympics. So recognizing that there was this potential for something important to happen in the region, there was an effort to work together. I'm calling this sort of pandemic relations. And I found this nifty website, which some viewers may know well. It's the International Air Transport Association's interactive map. And the historian in me is finding this as compelling now as the Johns Hopkins University rightly famous COVID map. But this is a COVID map for how to get around the world if you're delivering cargo or people. And it doesn't care where you are its sole purpose is to get goods and services around. And I think that really frames why this coronavirus is so different from the SARS outbreak in 2002, 2003, which epidemiologically, I mean, we don't really know yet, but it's a very similar outbreak in the sense that we're talking about a bat, a bat in a market who creates a global catastrophe. In 2002, 2003, People were not traveling, especially people from China, were not traveling around the world the way we have this happening now. And so what's happened differently since the stated outbreak early January 2020, but we knew it was happening in December, maybe now we even think November, October, is a complete global public health catastrophe. So where are relations between Japan and Korea? The reason I started with that global map is that the Japanese air transport map has lists of nations, just hundreds of nations, specifically nation, 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 who can't come in and ban travel bans, travel bans. South Korea's is is interesting by way of comparison. There's a sort of blanket statement about short-term visas, less emphasis on the nationality of the person, but what kind of visa? And essentially, it's the same information. But the reason I underscore this is, unfortunately, the first response that the government of Japan issued in early March, when it realized it really did have a problem that was not simply limited to the Diamond Princess cruise ship offshore, the first response was to go for its base to shore up the people, and to issue travel restrictions on Chinese and South Koreans. The next day, Foreign Minister Kang said, oh, no, 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 that's not scientific, but we'll do it too, and issued travel restrictions on Japanese nationals. So it's a quid pro quo that plays to the base, and it's unfortunate because, and we're not all gonna sit around always and say, oh my God, South Korea did everything right, but for the first month, for February, South Korea remains a model for what especially, and it's deeply humbling as an American right now, especially in Connecticut where we have almost 4,000 deaths, a number so much larger than Japan and Korea even combined. But South Korea's insistence on testing, tracing, and quarantine is really what is the scientific approach, not the nationalized identification of People who might be bringing the disease, because the disease does not care what your passport is. But unfortunately, so this is a long winded answer to your is it a plateau or what's it doing? Unfortunately, we're seeing that the pattern of behavior that had shored up politicians prior to COVID still works for politics in both Japan and South Korea. What I wanted to get at with the South Korea versus Japan is Japan went offshore immediately in its response, insisting that it was the foreigners on the Diamond Princess, that this was foreigners bringing this disease to Japan when it was already in Japan. So it slapped these restrictions. South Korea fought back. The WHO immediately condemned both South Korea and Japan for this method of outsourcing the problem or using the nation model to blame and said, you guys have to work together. And I think what would be interesting is really to discuss with the WHO, it wasn't just a question of urgent global cooperation. It's very possible that North Korea was weighing heavily on the WHO's mind because this is, as several people have written about compellingly, should in fact COVID-19 become an issue in North Korea, it has the potential to wreak havoc on the nation as much as the 1997 famine. And so without cooperation between Japan and South Korea, the whole region imperils the livelihood of regular North Koreans in the mix. And I just, I put that out there to say that especially during a pandemic, North and South Korea are very much Korea, as much as Japan, South Korea, North Korea, China are all part of Northeast Asia. So that's where this is a moment when regional framing, global framing is essential. And yet the nation state keeps emerging as the default mechanism. And certainly, obviously, again, as an American, that's what we're doing. So I'm not saying that any country is doing this perfectly.
1: That's very interesting. and I think it sets the stage well. I think South Korea has received and earned a lot of praise for the way they've dealt with the coronavirus. I'm wondering if the next step is going to be the economic recovery, you know, how will countries do with that? And i had been assuming that South Korea would be hit hard economically because they're so trade dependent. But I saw the OECD made some estimate that South Korea would be the country that would recover fastest economically, which I thought was interesting, perhaps because they're tied to China closely, and that economy seems to be suffering less than some others. So how does Japan look economically to recover? this is the key question, right? Because on the one hand,
2: New York Stock Exchange was on the floor today. Shares are surging because on this hoped-for soon recovery. That, unfortunately, is simply not the science. The science is pretty clear. This virus is pernicious. Scientists around the world have been really working hard, many in deep collaboration, global collaboration, trying to figure out how this particular virus is working. The Chinese scientists put the RNA sequence on the web in early January suggests a level of willingness to cooperate with the world, and I think these Wuhan scientists must be commended for that. The fact that it is still eluding the world's best researchers is noticeable. At the same time, the containment, again, which both South Korea, China, Singapore, Taiwan, and New Zealand really took to heart from the beginning is something you can make money off of and something you can do well, right? And actually, if you do all of those steps and they're not perfect, we know the testing is not perfect. We know that you have to get tested weekly. We know that the tracing is invasive. We need intelligence communities and open societies to make better and better tracing apps, et cetera. And we know that the vaccine is still out there, but that's the goal is to get to those stages and that can help open economies for sure. What is a little difficult to swallow right now, especially as a university teacher, is realizing how hard this initial blow, economic blow, is hitting young people. I think, you know, South Korea's 15 to 29-year-olds are the ones most impacted in South Korea. Absolutely, what is known, the Japanese economist Osawa Machiko termed it the precariat several years ago, the Mm. temporary labor force absolutely slammed by this in a way more than the 2008 layman shock and certainly even more potentially than the 1997 asian financial crisis so how we emerge from this economically depends on the willingness of especially rich countries to work together to help stem what is going to potentially be catastrophic famines in across Africa, across the most vulnerable states. But the part of me that finds this kind of ironic, and we can come to it later, is this is kind of capitalism 101. This is a lot of inexpensive plastic to make and sell around the world because people need PPEs protective equipment. People need the testing kits. I find it fascinating that one of South Korea's current government directives is to build more ventilators, build ICU beds. These are things for private industry to do, retool the workforce that has been laid off and not just for gig economy delivery jobs, but it does not take a trained doctor or nurse to perform a test. It requires maybe two days of training to learn how to administer a test properly we may have 40 million unemployed people in the United States. Certainly some of those people could be trained. And I'm sorry to go on, but you know, as a historian, it starts with the economy and this is a disaster. So Japan, absolutely, there should be government directives not just promising free masks and a thousand dollars to students who are Japanese students and not foreign students, but it should be training the people who had part-time jobs in supermarkets to help with the testing, to help with the care and provide them from a, a state level with the proper protective equipment and pay for the proper protective equipment. And again, then somebody makes money.
1: I agree. We're not hearing enough about the problem that's coming in Africa, the Middle East. It seems like in the absence of G7 or G20 leadership, mm-hmm. that's one area where Japan and Korea could work together to try Absolutely. to find ways they could join forces to try to deal with the crisis that's coming.
2: And then I would just, again, throw North Korea in the mix there. And North and, Korea. you know, I mean, just get ready for the absolute lack of infrastructure in North Korea. We know North Korea has one of the highest incidence of multidrug resistance tuberculosis on the planet.
1: Yep. Get ready for it. Well, that's exactly right. To get back to nuts and bolts of the Japan Korea relationship a little bit, it seems like good news that Japan's latest diplomatic policy paper, they referred to South Korea again as an important ally. They used those words for the first time in three years. It looks like a promising sign. But there may be a problem looming, as I understand it, in the forced labor story again. You know, in December 2018, the Korean Supreme Court ruled that individual forced laborers had the right to sue Japanese companies. They seized some assets. Those have been kind of an escrow ever since, but I've heard that over the next few months, South Korea may make the decision to actually sell those assets and then give the funds to the forced laborers. So if that happened, how serious would it be? How would Japan react to it?
2: This issue is going to survive COVID-19, as deep-seated historical issues will do. In terms of the assets, I think one thing that is not getting a lot of attention at the moment, and I understand. The virus is actually the real topic at the moment. Last week, a bill that was before the South Korean parliament about forced labor got shelved and put aside. I don't personally know the backstory to that or the inner workings of why this measure that had been in the works for several months has been pushed aside, especially since President Moon and his party definitely have a mandate to continue ahead. There are numerous ways to analyze this, but I think it's possible to see that as South Korea's willingness not to have this front and center at a moment when As President Moon made clear on May 18th in a speech to the WHO, we need to work globally. We all need to work together. At the same time, the history issue of forced labor continues to be real, and insofar as the families, the survivors, will continue to seek justice and have the mandate to do so, I can't say when it's going to rise again. A South Korean researcher discovered this document late in 2019. It's a letter of condolence from a factory in Hokkaido in 1943 to the family of a laborer who had been removed from what is now South Korea to work in a mine in Hokkaido. And so the history, the actual documentation of what Japanese historians estimate to be about 800,000 people of Korean birth brought against their will to work at upwards of 4,000 sites throughout Japan with known 1,200 companies, 300 of which are still in business today. This is the meat of history. So yes, it was actually a good sign when the white paper referred to Korea in partnership terms. Prime Minister Abe's New Year's Day address was arguably pretty neutral. You might use the word plateau there. But then we have the reality of asotaro, who, in his New Year's address, referred to Japan as a homogenous nation across time for thousands of years, which, of course, is a dog whistle to the anti-Korea base that very much buttresses the Abe Aso worldview, which would continue to denigrate those seeking compensation and justice for forced labor. It is not an accident of history that Aso fathers, company, the Aso Mines in Kyushu, had a 42% Korean labor force. This is the push and pull of Japanese politics, which unfortunately relies increasingly on anti-Korean sentiment and anti-Korean action as its base. I do see that there have been some positive signs since the nadir of relations late last summer, and yet here we are, and there's still no resolution for an ever-increasing few number of people who suffered 75 years ago.
1: I think one thing I learned from your book, Troubled Apologies, was that whereas Americans tend to think of the japan korea relationship as being one about World War II, the Koreans tend to see it as being part of a 35 years of colonialization. So they've got a different perspective on it. I've got a question that I'll fold into this conversation because it fits in. It's about Moon Jae-in and Shinzo Abe. Moon, having won a big election recently, seemed like that would strengthen his ability to do more of an outreach toward Japan domestically. And other people say that we need to wait for the successors to Abe and to Moon Jae-in to actually solve the problem. So do we need to wait for successors or are these actually the right individuals to work on the problem?
2: That's the million dollar question in history. You never know whether it's a group effort or an individual. I can say as a US citizen that Donald Trump is showing that individuals do matter in history. Moon and Abe are very different people, right? Abe Shinzo shares much more in common with Kim Jong-un. And I say that simply in nuts and bolts, both are rich kids who inherited a country for all intents and purposes. Munjain, his focus is different from many, many of his predecessors, insofar as an anti-Japanese position is not his goal. Yes, he has played to the least common denominator. Before he became president, he visited Dokdo. Since being president, I think one of the low points was last August at the height of the anti-Japanese sentiment in South Korea when he said that he would fight Japan just tooth and nail and he really got into it. You could say always that South Korea is on the defensive and then the world focuses on South Korea not getting over it. I think we need to step back and recognize that Moon Jae-in's goal is to have better relations with North Korea. And that undergirds every one of his actions. Back up a couple years, Donald Trump's overtures to North Korea absolutely pulled the rug out from Prime Minister Abe's understanding of how he was supporting himself. Abe had positioned himself on being deeply anti-North Korean, or at least using North Korea as a foil. And all of a sudden, Trump, whom Abe thought was going to be his best friend forever, decided he wanted to make overtures to North Korea, which open moon into the sunshine the sunshine policy that got refashioned into moonshine whatever we're going to call it so can moon and abe make peace i don't know but i think china is going to be the determining factor here because the united states has just evaporated itself from credibility we wave guns around we demand money from both of our long-term allies and we're making a mockery of ourselves as a nation of science by I don't even want to go into how disastrous COVID-19 is in the United States compared to Japan and South Korea. But China is clearly not just rising militarily, but rising as the absolute power that both Japan and South Korea are going to not just have to contend with, but figure out how to position themselves next to. So are Abe and Moon the people to do that? How the nations handle the virus outbreak... I think really will shape the coming months, if not the answer to your question. Will that solve the issues of forced labor? It opens avenues for them because this crisis, this public health catastrophe offers the possibility for engagement in a way that has nothing to do with the colonial era.
1: That leads to another question from the audience and what I've had too about the U.S. role in all this. It seems to me that the U.S. has become so transactional with both Tokyo and Seoul that any concession that they make now looks like caving into Washington mm-hmm. rather than alliance building. So I think trilateral cooperation seems like a tough road to hoe for the, for, the, for the time being. Mm-hmm. Until the U.S. is acting more generously again, is there some other country that Korea and Japan both would find easy to work with that might propose common projects to work on? Europeans, Australia, India, can somebody else help?
2: India, Australia in particular, so essential to the United States' vision of an Indo-Pacific. Yes, and both those countries, as well as numerous, countless European countries, have deep relations with South Korea from the Korean War, and both have interests in the region getting along harmoniously. Again, I think all of the countries raised are finding the same problem with the United States now creating this standoff with China, because it's really forcing countries not to have to pick, but to have to say, where did the United States go? Because none of these countries is naive enough to think that just being thrown money by China is the way to go. Yet in the whole scale absence of US leadership, it's really kind of a free for all. And so there are all sorts of numerous proposals for smaller groupings of nations to get along. But backing up, the problem remains, the linchpin in all of this even including, very much including the structure of the US alliances with Japan and South Korea, and how the normalization of both Japan and South Korea has been structured since 1965, is the Korean War, which, you know, we're about to have the 70th anniversary of the beginning of the Korean War, and without an end to the Korean War, It's really difficult to unravel any of these knots, especially the prior ones involving forced labor, involving issues lingering from Japan's colonial era, which are the ones the United States allowed Japan to brush under the rug. And so all of these issues are tied together that unfortunately necessitates the presence of the United States in a way that, yes, good faith diplomacy by India, Australia, various European nations certainly brings people to the table. But the final decider, as it were, unfortunately remains Washington, and Washington has just
1: disappeared. Yeah, you know, if there's any very thin silver lining to U.S. foreign policy now, is it is had other countries, they made them think about the relationship with each other. Because mm-hmm. they, they've got to think about what else they can do. They've got to hedge as much as they can. So yeah. we're kind of forcing some, co- some cooperation. I'm not sure if that's our intent or not. That gets to like kind of a final bottom line question, which is which is more important: the fact that Japan and Korea have so much common interest that they really need to work together, or is it more important that the obstacles they're facing in the relationship bilaterally are too big to overcome? Which is the bigger factor?
2: We're in a pandemic. We really do need to get through this pandemic together because that's where Japan, South Korea, longstanding efforts, especially in more vulnerable countries in Africa, throughout Micronesia, Melanesia, throughout the Pacific, Latin America even, we are on the verge of some real global catastrophes that we need Japan and South Korea's expertise, connections, and ability to work together, both scientifically and entrepreneurially, just in every way, shape or form. The only thing a historian can do in a pandemic is to survive it so we get to the other side. But this much I can see is we have to help one another in any way possible and not worry about the national origin of things, but rather getting through this
0: and learning from this catastrophe for better planning in the future. That's it for our episode today. Many thanks to Dr. Alexis Dudden, Mark Tokola, and to you listeners for tuning in. The discussion today was part of KEI's ongoing conversation series, which happens every Tuesday. You can find more information on our upcoming talks on our website at keia.org. Don't forget that KEI also has a weekly newsletter called KoreaView, where we cover trends that reveal the inner workings of Korean politics, economics, and society. You can sign up in the link in the description of this episode. We'll be back next week, see you then.